Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 209. Oh, man, 209. Almost 210. It's almost 300. Yeah, right. Just around the corner. Actually, the 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 hundred the the hundred episodes happen a lot faster than you think. Well, it's also depending on your time scale. If you think of on uh, like let's say we're going to do a thousand episodes, yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that theory uh, that um, when you're a kid, days seem longer because each day is a greater percentage of your life. Whereas when you're older, like. They, they're such a small percentage of your life that they just seem to go faster. Mm. So these episodes are starting to go faster and faster. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's up, Parker? Well, one thing I wish was going faster, the, the Pinotaur project. Um, well, it seems to be going pretty quick. Yeah, it's going pretty quick. It's just I wanted to go faster. I want, I want to get in production. Um but we have have revision to flipping a machine now up in uh, Wisconsin somewhere, in the in the boonies of Wisconsin, and um, so it's flipping. So that's good. And they been um, experimenting with a couple different like a uh, couple different um, software packages that uh, to run the game on the computer. So it's very interesting what they've been coming up with up there. Um, so I can't talk too much more about that part. The, the high-end software part, but it's pretty exciting. Um, mm, secrets. Yeah, secrets. But um seems like Mission Pinball Framework is also working pretty well. So um, that's the one I can talk about. And basically, like, the one that we're going to sell the platform with. So, like, we'll sell... When we sell the board, we're like, it works with MPF. That's, like, the software package we're going with. Yeah, because so. that, that touches the most people, right? Yeah, it, it, and it's open source and all that good stuff. Where, but we're also like the protocol to talk to the board is open. So if you want to design your own thing, you can. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and and so this is Rev two. Rev two is working, but you actually have plans already for Rev three, right? Yeah, we already had plans for Rev three. Talked about a couple of podcasts ago. Um, but they're all simple, like cosmetic changes. Yeah, it's just. Cosmetic changes, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were saying what, like ninety degree trace? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Some traces I didn't didn't chamfer, and um, we are changing like one of the connectors a little bit. So. Right, right, right. You talked about that a couple times. Um, cool. So, so you think Rev three, and then you'll go to production? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Cool. And for that, is you have to build all the like the supporting hardware now for the board, and so right. the lights are the next thing. And so um, a couple months ago, I tested out the APA 102C260 new. That's the whole part <laughs> number. And I did a reflow test, and it works perfectly fine in our lead-free process. Nice. Um, and that's a smart LED as well, so it works great. Because um, usually with those smart LEDs, you get issues with moisture in the plastic, and um, yeah. or the plastic isn't designed for you know, 250 plus Celsius temperatures. Um, but these seem to work great. Um, and I can buy them directly from the manufacturer, which is like, was it Neon World? And they come on a reel, right? Yeah, they come on a reel. Yeah, Neon World, that's the APA Electronic Co. Um, 
I would highly re- recommend them. They're pretty like they let me just buy one reel, which I was pretty happy with. And I think it was only 70 bucks a reel. So it wasn't too bad. How many come on a reel? Uh, a lot. 3,000? No, it couldn't be that much. Probably a few hundred, I would think. Um, no, it was it was definitely more than that. Um, I think it was 10,000. No, those things are much bigger than that. You get 10,000 resistors on a reel. Yeah, but that's like, you know, you still got, uh, four, uh, what was it? Is it 8 mil spacing? I mean, is this a big reel or a small reel? It's a small reel. Let me. I'm. I'm actually checking my inventory at Macrofab right now. <laughs> How many do I have? You know, speaking about reels, uh, just a funny story. We um, we got some uh, pin headers made for us not that long ago, and totally got bit by a Chinese company. It really sucks. I, I, I shouldn't say bit. Like all of our headers are totally acceptable to use, but we bought a few different variations on pin headers, and um, this company that we worked with. One of our clients had actually used it, and they recommended them to us. So we got in contact, got samples, and everything was hunky-dory and great. Uh, And then uh, so we asked for some drawings for these things, and they made some custom drawings just for us. That's nice. And um, they put the wrong reel size on the drawings. So we went out and we bought new um, uh, magazines or feeders for our machine for that those real sizes and then the headers came on and they're not those sizes it's like Ooh. damn it that sucks <laughs> whatever i mean we're still able to use them but it's just like now we have the wrong size um feeders, feeders. yeah now yeah. you're going to be shopping for parts that fit those feeders well it never it, like when it comes down to this kind of stuff it in my opinion never really hurts to have extra feeders cuz you never know what's going to happen but these were like 44 millimeter feeders are huge oh, yeah you know yeah. so it's like the only thing that comes on 44 millimeter feeders are like ginormous connectors yeah yeah, yeah. so the, there are a thousand a reel yeah that makes yeah. a lot more sense because yeah. i have 990 in inventory i use 10 on a te- on the test go figure <laughs> yeah um so yeah i would recommend them um so i, I have got the test boards almost built and then I'm going to get those uh, all uh, made up. I'm probably going to build like 20 test uh, board. No, 64. I'm going to build 64 of them. Hmm. So we have enough to do one whole game. And uh, yeah, should be pretty good. And then nice. on the brewery, I got the whole cart welded up. And uh, I welded it with uh, no, MIG steel and... It's a two-inch box tubing, 14-gauge. It's pretty scoop. It's hefty. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. And I, I, I welded it all with on my you know my welding table, so it's, everything was flat, and everything's got 90 degrees. Like, when I set it up, and I put it on my concrete floor in my garage, it didn't wobble. That's awesome. I was like, yeah. <laughs> what's, your, what's your method for holding a 90? So, for welding, holding a 90, what I do is... I take whatever the first stick, right? So mm-hmm. let's say it's two-inch box tubing, and I clamp it to my welding table. And it's, it's, it's that kind of welding table. It's got holes all in it. And so you can use those clamps that kind of just stick in the hole, and then you clamp it down. So you do that. And then I have a just a speed square or speed triangle, speed square or speed triangle. 
I don't, I don't, I don't remember. It's, what it's, it's called. a triangle <laughs> shape, but it squares. Things. I think it's called. I actually, that I think that's called a square. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think the brand Speed Square. <laughs> and um, the Kleenex of squares. Yes. Speed. Uh, it is a Speed Square. That's that is what it's called. That's what the tool is called. Anyways, I use that, and then I kind of I I get it all squared up, and then I clamp that second piece down. Check it again, and it always moves when you clamp it, mm-hmm. right? And so then I take a little, ha- little tiny hammer and kind of just tap it into into place while it's like kind of clamped down, and then I clamp it even more, check the square again, make sure that's good, and if that's good, and then um, I tack all the way around it. So one, two, three, four tacks on it. Oh, yeah, that's right. You have to make sure your corner is off the table right so your, your corner is floating so that way you can tack the bottom of it so do you tack the the external edge or the internal corner first uh i usually just do the top oh okay okay just because of the pulling like you know as it cools well i just do them all in succession so i go boom 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 oh so they're the kind of cooling they're kind of cooling at the same time and then yeah. everything is clamped right so and then Basically, I tackle four, and then I just unclamp it, and then go on to the next one. Okay. And then if I have to have that corner, and the trick is, if you have to have that corner rest flat, you have to make sure to make sure you grind that that tack flatter, because it, it will rise up. But if you grind it flat, it, you still won't cut the tack all the way through. But you gotta make sure that's still flat when you're, you know, shifting your material around on your welding table. And it, that I mean, that's how I always built. The, like I've tried like. The welding clamps that's supposed to keep things ninety, I've never had luck with those. those <laughs> I I call them gimmick clamps. <laughs> yeah, those work. Those work actually pretty nice for screwing like two by fours together in a ninety. Like yes, way better than weld. I don't know why they suck for welding. They're designed for welding. Now they're just not good. Yeah, I've I've watched a handful of YouTube videos on how to get like a good ninety, and yeah. it seems like everyone has their own like trick. Yeah, they do. mine is just the old school, just speed square, put it all together. It probably takes longer, so it's probably not, if you had a fab shop, that's probably not the way to do it. Yeah. But you'd have a fixture probably if you had a fab shop. Right, so. right, right. But yours just works. Yeah, it works great. It's just a little slower. We were talking about making some fixtures. Uh, I, I milled some. Yeah. I've got some really nice... Where's mine? Nineties. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Why don't you get a mill and mill them? <laughs> I have to buy a twenty k mill to make a hundred dollars worth of squares. Two hundred and fifty k. Get it? Get it right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, um, yeah. I, I I milled some. Gosh, one inch aluminum. Well, four of them actually, uh, my own speed squares that are that are nineties, yeah. and they're super nice. But yours are designed to clamp to, right? Which would speed up my technique, basically. Yeah, but my, I haven't actually used them yet because I haven't had any welding projects yet that need them. But uh, yeah, the the idea is is to actually put four clamps on them and hold hold a, a really nice ninety, and then just let it cool with the clamps on it, and it'll remain ninety. Yeah. I mean, these things are really skookum. Mm-hmm. It's well, it's I'm, pretty hard to bend a triangle of one inch square solid aluminum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I need to get you some aluminum then. 
Yeah, yeah. I so it took a some. long time to mill. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I it, it was one off, so I wasn't trying to optimize it. It was just like ah, cut triangle, go. <laughs> <laughs> But an inch, uh, although it was pretty fun because I, I used an eight millimeter um, bit. That was the first time I used an eight millimeter bit on this. So it was an eight millimeter cut cutting bit that was running at 45,000 RPM. And it just, it just eats aluminum. Just it. Oh, it just, it just is a fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I got that done. And then um, I'm going to put a, it's on casters now and it rolls really good. Um, so the next step is to put the counter on it, and I'm going to use... I have an old butcher block from Ikea. It's that old um, workbench I had at Macrofab, that really big, long, wooden one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so no one's using it at the fab anymore. It's actually in, like, the compressor room now, like, hmm. all taken apart. And so I'm just going to... Tomorrow, I'm actually going to go to work with my trailer, load it up on the trailer, take it home, and cut it up to put it on the top of this brewery. It will live on... <laughs> Um, so I gotta do that, and then the pots can go on, and then I have to mock up where I want the pumps, because I want I'm gonna cut some brackets out of steel, mount them where they need to go, weld the brackets, all that stuff. So the pumps are where they need to go, and then I have to figure out how to build a hoist hmm. or a crane, be fun. Um, because the the mash ton is like waist level and so trying to pick up you know probably about a hundred pounds of of grain wet grain wet grain is uh above your head is probably not the best thing to do yeah, yeah that's a back workout yeah and so we were talking about how how we would um do this and so i, I could build a crane that's attached to the cart um a lot of people just to solve this problem a lot of people just have like a a electric hoist or electric winch bolted to their ceiling mm-hmm. which would work but i was planning on doing it outside um or under my back patio basically i can brew wherever because on a cart now which would be nice if it's a nice day do it in the driveway if it sucks in the garage um stuff like that and so i, I the i like the electric idea and i wish i had it was like in one spot because then i would just put one i just screw an electric winch to the ceiling and just call that good. But um, I'm thinking about a combination of... Um, oh, you, know, you had the idea of build like a little frame, like a gantry crane. Yeah, basically like a basically a U-shaped frame above everything. Yeah, so you just wheel it over it and yeah. then you can lift it up and then wheel it away, which would work. Or you could have that be a permanent part of the cart and just use uh, like a frame over top. Yeah, yeah. As I was thinking, but I I need it to be the lift that high. I also need to be able to swing it away from the cart to lower it again. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So the gantry idea, like you could just wheel the gantry over it and then pick it up, and and then you can use the gantry for other things. Yeah, engine hoist. Yeah, engine <laughs> engine hoist. Yeah, I'd have to make it add like I beam then. Yeah. Um. I wonder if I could. Uh, yeah, I could totally weld something that could lift an engine. Yeah, you absolutely. A two ton lift. Yeah, yeah. That's not hard. And we can test it by lifting an engine, see if it does it or not. <laughs> yep, it lifts an engine. It can lift beer. You can lift beer. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got some design decisions and process decisions I wanted to figure out on that before 
I I go into. I already bought some like uh, Skookum like J hinges. Mm-hmm. Like if I was going to weld it to the frame, I would use J hinges, and that way you can have the crane on it. And then when you're done, you could lift the crane up and then turn it sideways and like put it on the back of the cart. So, because this thing is going to be like seven feet tall, and so wheeling it around like with this huge crane on top and it, like bumping stuff is something I'm not looking forward to. I mean, it, it, it might not be as pretty as you want, but you could just put, I don't know, just put some like circular, um, uh, I, don't, I, would, I don't even know the way to describe it, but basically it's just like make the crane just an arm that's a tube that slides into something on the back and it's able to just spin around. And then when you're done, just like take it out. That's yeah, yeah that's, all, that's what I'm thinking. Except yeah. the tube, I was going to. I have J hinges. Sure. So, that, so they ride on a ball bearing at least. Nah, so I don't even easy. need that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't need that, but I am because I can. <laughs> right. Um. But my, I, I guess I need to run some math too. It's like if you have this arm, it picks it up, and then you just swung it out. Is it going to flip the cart over? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're starting to talk about like torques and moments and arms and things remember all that from school <laughs> statics Ugh. well no you're talking about dynamics dude well that's dynamics but you could treat it as a as a static not if it's moving <laughs> well no is, is you treat it you treat like what you would do is you would treat the worst case scenario would be if it's you know perpendicular to the opposite direction holding the weight would yeah. it flip the cart over and you can treat that as a static problem yeah you could or what was it? Oh, well, it's like a dynamic a dyna- dynamic problem is if you just took a static and just integrated it a lot. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what happens when electrical engineers start to talk about mechanical stuff. Yes, I did take a statics class, um, unfortunately, in college. <laughs> I, you know, I had the opportunity to either take a statics class or take one math class and get a math minor. So I was like, screw statics. Oh, that's cool. What what math class did you take? Uh, uh, waves and wavelets, uh, which which was an entire. It was awesome because it was taught by a, a math professor, but the only people taking it were engineers. So uh, she was very. She was like, "I'm going to make you do a handful of proofs, but it's not going to be all about proofs. It's going to be way more practical stuff." And so we yeah. did a lot of um, uh, Fourier series stuff. And, cool. Uh, yeah, so is it, is is a is a wavelet just a smaller wave like a pig and a piglet? It was yeah. <laughs> actually it was a, it was a lot of it was oh my god it was tons of like if something is periodic then you can do x y z to it. It like if if you had to describe the class it was it was okay. that. You know? Yeah, cuz I had I took a I took a proofs class in math. That sounds like it would have probably sucked. And most of the people in that class were math majors. I was the only engineer and I don't know if I told the story before on the podcast or not, but um, basically by like the fifth week, I figured out the pattern of how the class was structured. Mm. It was like you basically had to do one proof that was a pain in the ass. And then the next chapter was here's the easy proof to do that one. <laughs> and then you ha- basically it's that repeat. Right. So wait, you found a pattern in a math class. In a math class, yes. And so what I did is I went, I was like, I, I, I always read ahead in my textbooks. And so I did the proof 
the easy way. And my teacher thought I was cheating. Hundred <laughs> percent said I was cheating because I did it the easy way because I read one chapter ahead. That's great. Yeah. I, I got a I got a really uh, bad math joke for you. You ready okay. for this? Okay. So uh, an engineer, a physicist, and a mathematician are living in a house, and they all go to bed. Right. So the house catches on fire in the middle of the night. The uh, physicist wakes up and he sees the fire and he and he goes and he calculates the exact amount of water that is necessary to, to put out the fire and he throws it on the on the fire and it goes out. So he goes back to bed. The engineer wakes up later and the house is on fire again. So he devises this entire like sprinkler system and, and designs this entire thing and sets it up and he efficiently puts out the fire and he goes to bed. And then later in the, in the night, the house catches on fire again, and the mathematician wakes up, and he goes out, and he looks at the fire, and he goes, there's a solution to this, and goes back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it must be one crappy house if it catches on three fu- Actually, and the engineer messed up, because he, his system only worked once. <laughs> That's true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> one, whoever, I guess, actually, yeah. I would a fire extinguishing system probably only functions once in a house in a building commercial building well it has to be reset right yeah you'd have to put new fittings because it's like it works based on like the melting temperature of a pellet mm-hmm. yeah like it like breaks yeah yeah hmm random thoughts of the uh of fire extinguishing <laughs> the Mac Rev Engineering Podcast. <laughs> cool. Okay, Stephen, what have you been up to? Uh, well, I'll give you an update on the simulation of the week. Um, so the last time... And right here we'll have a sound effect or an intro for the simulation of the week. Are we a simulation? I don't know. I don't think it matters. Okay. <laughs> Right, so what's the simulation? Well, the, the, so the last time uh, we did a simulation, it was for a um, a low pass filter. Uh, it's a Salen Key uh, two pole low pass filter. So for this simulation, I built upon that and made it a band pass. So we have a uh, a high pass and a low pass uh, cascaded Salen Key. Um, filter but i went above and beyond that and we've uh, there's also um a monte carlo tolerance simulation and a gaussian tolerance uh, simulation in this so basically there's three examples in the simulation which you can go to my github which is analog eng uh, analog eng on github and you can download this and check it out if you want so uh the first example is just a bandpass uh, so it's like the actual calculation is what you will get uh, the second example is Monte Carlo, which is a built-in function that's in LT Spice. So I actually have it simulating, I think it's either 100 or 200 times. I can't remember. Um, but it, it, it simulates 200 times, and each time it picks a random value for a variable X, and then it plugs that in, and it spreads the tolerances of the components around by that random value, and then re-simulates. And then you can plot it, and you can see the variations of the cutoff and the queue and things like that across 200 simulations. So with the Monte Carlo, it's entirely random. It's Your tolerance is just going to be wherever the random value between plus and minus 10% is what I have set for all of the components mm-hmm. on there. Uh, so you can sort of see your like window of opportunity of what the filter is going to look like. 
Like and absolute it's kinda, worst case. Absolute worst case, right. Uh, and 200 simulations is probably plenty enough to get absolute worst case but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll get worst case because it, it's all random but it's probably pretty good if you wanted to make that a thousand runs and you, your probability will go up i guess ah do ten thousand because that's a real <laughs> yeah ten, yeah ten thousand <laughs> there we go uh that would take forever to simulate the cool thing is though is be, uh if you look at the output of the monte carlo filter and the output of the like just non-toleranced filter, mm -hmm. you can see the line of what nominal would be, and then you can see the spread around that, which is kind of cool. Uh, and then there's a third example in this simulation that uh, assumes a Gaussian distribution of values for each component. So it's a little bit more real world, where you can see, um, you know, with a Gaussian uh, distribution, it's not equally weighted for all tolerance values everything is going to be a little bit more towards the center of or the mm -hmm. nominal value and so you can get a little bit better idea of where your cutoff and q and everything is going to sit so check out the simulation of the week i think it's called bandpass i don't remember what i named it but it's up there <laughs> uh so i've also been uh, working a bit more on the fermentation controller uh the last time we talked about it i was looking for um some parts mainly the switches and uh the kind of the user experience on the front so ooh, i like your term user experience you know uh we started using that at work instead of like the word front panel it's called user experience <laughs> it's a little bit cheesy but i like it uh no i, I like, like it a lot too yeah so uh or or it's better than user interface in my opinion because it's just like, what are you experienced? Are you experienced? <laughs> so um, check this out. I'm, uh, I'm showing Parker some pictures. I got like a handful of switches and button pads and all yeah. kinds of stuff. Um, I, went, I went on Amazon and just bought a bunch of like the cheapo stuff just to get a feel for like a handful of things. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I ended up deciding to go with 40 amp solid state relays on that just because I want them to be robust and... You know, we're talking about running a fridge on this, which is going to be less than 15 amps. So these are just beefy solid state relays. And uh, I kind of like the look of these ones. They, uh, they're they not the, like, if you go on Amazon and look at solid state relays, you, you got a bunch of, like, the tan ones. But I got these black ones that have a plastic cover that go on top of it. It's, I don't know. They just look a little nicer to me. Um, so I got uh, eight of those relays in. So that's enough for both of our boxes. And uh, the part number for those is BEM-14840DA, in case you wanted to go and look at these relays yourself. The nice thing about these is that they interface directly with a processor. Like, you can... Oh, they're 3-volt compliant? 3-volt. Well, they're 3 to... What is it? 3 to 32-volt um, DC. So any anywhere in, in there, uh, we'll drive it on. Gotcha. So... Um, I can plug it directly into my 3.3 volt processor and go to town on it. Do they do they have a rating for like what your like what's on the input of that? It's uh they, they it's basically like an input diode. Uh so they do have an input current that you have to be able to supply, but it's it's minimal. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty pretty easy. So I've actually never thought about that before. They're they're very very light to drive. Let's put it that way. 
Um, I've driven them from processors before, and for the for the most part, I should only have like one or two of them on at a time, because I mean, there's nothing really magical about this box. It's just powering some outlets. So um, the the switches that I've been going for or looking at is mainly for the user experience on the front, and I've been looking at tactile switches and membrane switches to kind of get a feel for what I want it to end up being like. So the, the is what's sort of driving this is like what what inputs is the user going to have to actually press? Because I could set it up where there's arrow keys, like an enter and a back or something like that. But I've kind of, I don't know, I don't really like that because I don't like the idea of having to scroll through temperatures with arrow keys. That's just... A little bit of a pain in the ass, you know? You're just having to press a button over and over and over and over again? Yeah, so... Or you um, hold it down and it scrolls past what you need? Well, oh my god, I absolutely hate that. When you have to hold the button, <laughs> you wait a second, and then it starts to go, but then it like goes like light speed past your number? Well, that's that's the thing, is... Acceleration. Is Yeah, yeah the acceleration, because the because I've, I've designed GUIs that do that on microcontrollers, but I always have a progressive acceleration... Whereas most time you get the slow, slow, slow light speed. Yeah. You don't have the slow, 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 a little bit faster, a little bit faster, and then fast. Yeah. Like, you need to ramp into it. Because that's what, I don't know, I think that's what humans expect. But so when you just go one, two, three, four, da, 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 da. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, uh, the stereo that I have on my TV, uh, I actually uh, inherited it from uh, Chris Church at Macrofab. It uh, it's great. It sounds awesome. It does everything great, but the volume control is absolutely horrendous on it. Here's the thing: <laughs> so every up or down click on the remote is 0.1 dB on it. So okay. like it's stupid accurate. Like you don't need that resolution on there. Uh, so the 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 remote is awful at detecting a button press. And so you like to get like a reasonable jump in volume, you have to press it like 20 times, which you'd never want to do. So you have to press and hold it. But if you press and hold it, it goes 0.1 and then it goes up by one decibel, like at 20 hertz, you know? So it's just like, <laughs> it's like 0.1 and then it goes up to like uh, unbelievably loud. And so I've gotten to the point where I've like, I've got a feel for it. I know how like how to press it just right to go up or down like by three decibels, you know? It's really, really stupid. Like that is that's an example of a bad user experience right there. Yes. <laughs> okay, so so back to it. Like uh so I, I don't like the idea of just having switches that are like up, down, left, right, enter to be able to uh enter in a temperature i kind of want a keypad with it mm -hmm. and i've got so many pins available on this processor i chose that that's not a problem so i actually got three different keypads here i'm showing them to parker i got one that's that's got these big like rectangular or square um chunky buttons chunky tactile switches this board is kind of ridiculous though on the back uh you could probably barely see it but there's like it says the number of the button and then a three-digit or four-digit number next to it. This this whole board, which is a four-by-four four matrix of switches, is just uh, ladder resistors. So you apply voltage to it, 
and then whatever button you press, you you send the you send the output off to a DAC or an yeah. ADC, and then you just read it and you know what button it is. And that's fine and all. That's really simplistic, but that means things get really screwy if you accidentally press two buttons, right? Because if you press yes. two buttons, then the value is like all over the damn place. So even though I really like this one, I like the feel of it and they're big chunky buttons. I don't think I'm going to go with this. Um, I mean, I, the funny thing is like the user experience is for me and for you. Like, yeah. I, like I'm not designing <laughs> this for a mass production, but still, I just, I don't know. I don't it's like how fast are we going to be pressing buttons? And and there like there's no desire to press more than one at at the same time. Yeah. So I could use this, but I don't know. Just I want a seven and a four at the same time. At the, yeah. Well, I know I'm going to give it to Parker, and Parker's going to break it. Uh, and I, not like physically, but he's going to find some way that it doesn't work. I'm going to I'm going to issue pull requests on <laughs> GitHub. <laughs> right, yeah. So I've got another keypad. I think this is this is a uh, one that's all over. Amazon. I think it's also like an Adafruit or a SparkFun one. And it's like an old telephone keypad thing. And I just, it's mushy. I don't like the feel of it. And it's like a really crappy single-sided board thing. And I, I don't f really feel like I want to go with that. Um, so the last one I've got here is actually a really cheap or inexpensive membrane button that has a sticky back on it. And it has a, uh, a little flex cable that I can just plug into yeah. my board. It feels kind of industrial, and I like the idea that it would be waterproof. So all I have to do is mill a slot in the board, slide this ribbon cable through, and then there's an entire membrane button thing. And on the membrane button, it's a 4x4 four four grid. It has arrow keys and a whole number pad thing. And a function pad, and start and stop. So I could do this all with this membrane switch, and the thing about it is it... Um, it it's good, just runs on a key scan uh, algorithm thing. So uh, no problems with pressing more than one at the same time. Uh, and, I, and the little box I got came with two of these, so I already have enough to do both of our projects. <laughs> so I might use this. Um, I like it. has a lot of good features behind it. And like I said, it sort of feels a little bit industrially in mm -hmm. that sense. So I like that. I did buy 10 of uh some e-switches the from the company e-switch the part number is 700 sp7 m1 qea p2 blk blk in case you wanted to look it up <laughs> and these are uh i really like e-switches um they're big like beefy switches and uh, they're not cheap but these are kind of going to be like the ones that will last for sure the longest. So I bought these because they, they've got like a rectangular shroud around them. And the button itself is rectangular and it's really like clicky tactile. And uh, these are kind of like the most like chunky switch out there. So I've got those on the way. They haven't arrived yet. But um, I'm thinking about potentially using those in combination with the membrane switch. So the membrane switch can be for entering numbers because it has a full numeric keypad and then using these things for like scrolling around menus. Just, I don't know, for the chunky, clicky, tactile-y thing. Mm -hmm. So in case anyone wants to check out the membrane switch uh, on Amazon there, Utop? Y-O-O-T-O-P. That's a brand. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Utop 16 key matrix membrane switch keypad keyboard for Arduino is what it's called. They had to hit all that SEO. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then uh, the 4x4 uh, tactile that runs on the ADC input is uh, by Robotdyne button keypad 4x4 module. So they don't actually have part numbers, go figure, but these are all like Arduino special stuff. Uh, that other one though is that's yo top. Oh, yo top. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like it. And the funny thing was just out of just for fun, I I gave all of these switches to my wife and I was like, if you had a like if you had to interface with something, this is the kind of conversations I have with my wife. <laughs> if you had to interface with something, which one of these would you like? And she didn't like the membrane one. She's like it feels cheap. <laughs> Did she say interfacing with you? <laughs> yeah. I stuck the membrane switch to my chest. It's just on your forehead. <laughs> yeah, on my forehead. Yeah. If you wanted to interface with me, which one of these would you like? <laughs> She's a good sport. Yeah. Uh, by, oh, so, by the next podcast, I'll have I'll have all the switches one? and I'll and I'll have one picked out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think it would be. I think that'd be actually a good test. Is to actually do the software side for all of them and set them up and be like, oh, he's holding up the case right now. With the membrane switch on it. It looks cool. It looks really cool. That case, I keep forgetting how ginormous that thing is. Oh, it's huge. It's, it's yeah, it's monstrous. It's like the size of my torso. It looks like a Secret Service uh, briefcase. Yeah, yeah. And with this keypad on it, it, it looks like a safe. Oh, yeah. almost Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So. We're going overkill, man. Overkill. Always do overkill. Yeah. Cool. On to the RFO. RFO time. So this week we got uh, we got a request on our Slack channel from Magic Wolfie or Wolfie or I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that name, but uh, they asked to talk about PCBA cleaning to remove excess flux. How's it done in the factory? and maybe some ideas of what to do at home. This is quite painful if you have to do more than one board. And yes, it yes, is absolutely is. painful if you have to do more than one board. So I guess we can talk about how, let's say how MacFab does it, and then mm -hmm. we can talk about how WMD does it, and then we can talk about how we individually do it at home. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, uh, I, so I think one thing, that's, um, one thing that we could start with is just say that you know, there's three kinds of flux out there. There's more than that, but there's three like major kind of flux. Yeah. There's no clean, there's water uh, clean flux, and then there's rosin based fluxes. Yeah, I would agree those are the three major types. Yeah. And they all have different ways that you can deal with them or not. Or not, yes. Right. Yeah. So how does that, how does Macrofab deal with flux? On board. So at Macrofab, we have we use two different kinds of fluxes. We have a no clean, so all surface mount is no clean, and through hole is done water based. Um, the 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 special thing we have is our our no clean is designed to be washed and not get ruined because that's the big thing with no clean is. It's called no clean flux because it's designed to not be activated at room temperatures. Normal temperatures that you interface with PCBs, it 
is not activated, so it won't corrode. That's uh, actually this step farther back is the reason why you would clean flux is so that it won't corrode your board, because the whole what the flux does is when you apply it to your your pads is it's actually eating the oxide layer off your legs of your chips. It's eating the oxide off the pads. It's eating the oxide off your solder as well, all at the same time, so that when you get that nice fillets on your solder joint, you don't have any cracks or co- what's called a cold solder joint. And a cold solder joint is when there's an oxide layer. It could be many things, but most of the time it's an oxide layer that's in between like the joint, in the joint. And so... Yeah, put simply, the flux cleans it. Yeah, the flux cleans everything and gets rid of the oxide. Um, and so a lot of factories nowadays use no clean for everything because you get to eliminate an entire step and your whole process. So you don't have to clean your boards after you're done. That's the whole point of going no clean. Um, so our at MacFab, we have it's kind of a special process because we have a paste jetter that you can only get no clean flux for. <laughs> So you can't get a water. If it was up to me, we would have water-based everything. Um, and that is mainly because uh, water-based flux is really, really easy to clean because you just have to clean it with warm distilled water and it comes right off the board and you get really nice, good-looking boards. Because no clean surface mount stuff, you you don't get a lot of splatter or anything. And so it's it's kind of localized to the s pad so you don't see it. But when you do no clean through hole... That stuff gets all over your board, especially if you're running like a selective solder or a wave solder, like it will leave residue all over your board. But it's fine because it's no clean, so it's not going to harm anything, but it doesn't look good. Um, and so that's why we use water based for through hole. Um, and so that gets into the weird dynamic of not everyone can do that, though. The, the, the no clean that we use in our paste jetter for our surface mount, when it um most most no clean when you wash it it gets rid of part of it and not all of it and actually when you do that because it like leaves that white crust behind that stuff is awful yeah and that stuff is actually corrosive now yeah and so if you water wash no clean most no clean it will leave this crust behind and that crust is corrosive and it will eat your board (laughs) so So you have to be careful how your no clean reacts to being washed. And so the great thing is with this, like with the uh, paste jet, the, the paste that we have to use for it, is it actually forms the no clean. It's actually like a hard shell. Yeah, and it's clear, right? It's it's kind of caramel colored. Oh, okay. actually, yeah. When it's get when it's when it's thin, it looks clear. But when it does like, but like when it goes on top of like the uh, on top of the joint, it does look like a little caramely. Mm-hmm. But when you wash it, it it rejects water. It it will not allow any because like, it makes like a hard shell. It's kind of weird, um, and so you can um, uh, so you can water wash it no problem, and it won't and it won't make the no clean corrosive. And so that way you get kind of the boast of both worlds. Is if you're just doing surface mount board, uh, parts, you get to not have to wash them. But if you have to do through hole. You can use water-based and then eliminate all the weird splotches, I guess. But if it was up to me, um, and if we could, I would use water-based through the whole process. Just because the 
Um, it also opens up so that you can do like RF stuff because those guys want their boards, you know, sparkling clean. They don't want any residue anywhere. You know, I, I would I would say RF, but also AF at the same time. Oh, audio, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and here's the thing: in in a lot of the circuits that I work with, we uh, we deal with current sources that are based on the collector of of BJT transistors, and you have really high impedance there, and such that it makes a really nice current source, and. Um, if if you have any flux residue around those transistors, you will get uh, issues and and offsets mm-hmm. and things. And so in oscillator circuits and things like that, I make one hundred percent certain there's not a lick of flux, even if it's no clean flux, because that flux adds parasitic, comp- uh, well, parts effectively to your oscillators, and you'll get incorrect readings or you'll get like like on a on a saw wave like a linear ramp it'll turn into like a pseudo sine wave you know it'll it'll curve Mm -hmm. because you have uh, this added impedance that you were not expecting on there it's it's especially bad like on like i said on high impedance transistor circuits but also uh film caps and things they do not like uh flux being around and and it, in general so so at wmd we also use no clean flux we actually switched over last year to entirely using no clean flux and that works out well and and we've we've tested actually the the no clean flux we have can be washed and it washes off entirely yeah so, so do you all use like a saponifier you know and and that's that's the interesting thing it we don't actually use a saponifier we found a no clean flux that will water wash if you want to Ooh, that's cool. But we don't need to. Um, yeah. most of so that, the time. That, yeah, and that's one thing is if you're um if you're wondering what to clean it with, usually the manufacturer will tell you the flux will tell you what it is. Right. Um you're gonna have to tell me what that no clean flux, that's kinda exciting. That's true. Yeah, I mean the thing is we actually so we have a uh, uh aqueous technologies trident board washer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's basically a glorified dishwasher that you put. Yeah, that's what we have. Yeah. And uh, those things are they're great, but we stopped using it because we didn't need to. Uh, So we don't actually wash our boards. But when we did some tests previously, they came out clean, super clean with uh, without. I mean, with the no clean on it. Yeah. So you so your boards have no clean all the way through then. That's right. Yeah, we do. We do no clean all the way through. um, But if we have like specific requirements like really sensitive circuits we can wash it if we need to and uh that's actually an important thing to note like if if you are engineering a product and you know you can't have flux on something you can specify that to your manufacturer and they can do specific cleaning processes Mm -hmm. but if not uh contact your manufacturer and figure out what you're going to get because some some will wash your your things and then some will use no clean without you asking you know you'll have to find out what paste they're actually using in their process yeah i think it's it's something like 80 plus percent of of contract manufacturers use no clean now yeah because it's easier Yes. Faster. Well, it's a whole process that yeah. most time you don't need anymore. Well, and we've switched over 100% to using no clean for rework, too. So we're no clean top to bottom. Um, we do have some water wash um, in case we need to. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just in general, we do no clean. So so that's, you know, at your manufacturer, the best thing, and, like, we, we've said this a thousand times about a bunch of different things is just always ask. 
Uh, always ask. Always ask, and if you need to, put it on your fabrication drawing if if you have a fab drawing of what you want to use. And that's important too, if you're especially with parts that are sensitive to being washed, mm-hmm. like MEMS microphones and um, any kind of any mo- a lot of like open air sensors stuff like that. Anything with a hole in the top. <laughs> yeah, anything with a hole in the top, yeah. Is let your manufacturer know that you have a part like that. Right. And so that they're not stuck or you're not stuck with 100 boards or 1,000 boards that that part is ruined because it got washed. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's really big. And, and that is... That is both the responsibility of the manufacturer and you to check. And the designer. And the, yeah, you to check, but also, like, it's not, especially at Macrofab, it's it's hard to check every single part. That, single part that comes in, yeah. I, I remember multiple times we had to redo orders there because uh, we washed a part that wasn't supposed to be washed, you know, mm-hmm. when we're at there. So uh, at the same time, anything that is supposed to be... Um, like if you have like jacks or something like that, they can be washed. But if you have potentiometers, most of the time they can't be washed. Uh, yeah. And when it like if you want to play it safe, just assume that it can't be washed. You know. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's another one. Um, wire wound inductors. Yeah. Will they will they corrode? They corrode. So do not wash them. Hmm. Yeah. That was one of the hardest. Um, I guess like failure analysis I've had over like the past six and a half years now was uh trying to figure out why some a batch of boards wasn't working Hmm. and um on this one circuit and it ended up being a through hole wire round resistor is uh inductor is the uh the flux got in there the uh water clean flux got in there because it was because some boards were built by hand and then some were built by the selective solder Hmm. well selective solder shoots the, the like with force the flux yeah and so it actually shot through the it would shoot through the holes and up into the inductor and that would and and when you would wash it the wa- the water it wasn't getting up into the inductor to clean it out hmm. so basically we had to go is you go from um we went from uh using water with that product to a no clean for the through hole and of course the customers at that point it's like oh all this flux is left over and i'm like you want corroded inductors, or do you want a little bit of flux like, residue? No, cl- no clean flux residue. It's like you got to pick your battles. <laughs> right, 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 right. Huh? That's that. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's really hard. Yeah. And that's on the manufacturer on that. You know, for that. Yeah, situation. on that one. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's one of the things. It's like, like uh, Colbert, at, who has run. You know, how long has he been doing? Oh, twenty assembly years. Board? Yeah, and he's never seen that before. Yeah, that I remember that one. That one was crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when when it comes to rosin flux, I say get rid of it no matter what. Like, and 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 a lot of times, like for hobbyists doing stuff at home, a lot of times you you end up with rosin flux because you have like an old spool of solder or that's what I use at home. Yeah, and it's it's great, cleans like like crazy, but it's it also leaves like goopy earwax all over your board. Yeah, I I would say that's probably the best thing is. To call it earwax, yeah, and it, it doesn't smell great, and and it doesn't age well. Uh, no. Just get rid. It of doesn't it. corrode your stuff though. It just sits around and looks nasty. Yeah, and it smells terrible. So, um, yeah, get rid of the uh, get rid of rosin flux as soon as you can. 
So at, at the home, how do you clean off rosin flux? You know, so a while ago, I went out and actually, pro tip, pro hobby home tip, I guess. Target sells alcohol for really cheap. I can't remember how much it was, but it was really cheap. And they sold, they were selling like 95% alcohol. Um, and so I bought like a whole bunch of it and I filled a bucket full of that stuff. And, uh, and I'm not talking like, don't go buy nail polish remover or the alcohol that has a green tint on it. Don't buy the crap for taking makeup off Buy like as pure alcohol as you can. And uh, I keep a bucket of that around all the time such that I can just scoop some out, put it in a tray, and then throw my boards in there. If my, if I know I have a bunch of parts that just don't, like, are fine with being submerged, like, ICs are fine with being submerged, resistors, caps, for the most part, are fine with being submerged, I just drop it in alcohol and let it sit for a while. And then I'll either take a nice, like, soft bristle brush or a toothbrush or something, and I'll just go over it. And uh, I... I like to spray it off with compressed air and uh, mm. I will do it until the boards don't feel sticky anymore. That's, that's the biggest thing. Like, <laughs> no, no, that, I mean like uh flux leaves a sticky residue. Keep going until that, until they're clean and like not sticky at all. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest thing. Uh, Cause I've, I've learned certainly in my own work, but also at work, if a board feels sticky, there's still incorrect impedance there. And mm -hmm. uh, and I've tr I've I've traced it before where I wash a board I look at an, uh, an oscillator on the scope and I see that it's not linear and then I wash it and I and it's a little more linear and I wash it and then I just let it sit for four hours in alcohol spray it off and it's perfectly linear so just let a whole bunch of alcohol fix it for you yeah <laughs> so I, I at home I I do the alcohol thing except that I usually buy I'll wait. For my local liquor store to have Everclear on sale, <laughs> I buy that because that's always cheaper than Isopurple. Yeah, and um, and you could drink it. Mm, not after the flux. <laughs> not after the flux. No, but yeah. um, so yeah, I I I basically buy the cheapest Everclear you can buy, and that works really well because uh, that's like straight up grain alcohol, ninety eight, ninety five percent. No, no, it's more than I I. I can't remember. There, there's a certain amount that the atmosphere will allow, you know, like <laughs> the atmosphere. No, seriously, like you can't have 100% alcohol, right? Because it'll just evaporate or, or like. Oh, there's a word. There's a word for that. Yeah, it'll I drink moisture what... to be like at equilibrium. I can't remember what that's called. Yeah, there's a certain word for that. But um, you can go higher, but you have to add stuff like benzene to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Don't and, don't drink that stuff. Well, and I think I think benzene also tastes like butt, right? So they put it in there so that you don't drink it. That like IPA is I don't think that's the reason why they put it in there, but oh sure. I think I think that like it is a terrible flavorant, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've never tasted it before, so I neither have I, but I've heard. So <laughs> don't go drinking IPA. It's not good for you. There's plenty of other alcohols you can drink. <laughs> yeah, anyways, I use I usually use you know Ethanol, not ethanol, uh, grain alcohol or or Everclear from the store because that's usually cheaper than I like buying like ninety five percent or higher IPA is generally very expensive. Yeah, and the stuff for human consumption is way cheaper. <laughs> I'm telling you, uh, maybe I just got lucky. Uh, maybe it was on sale, but I went over to Target and it was it was dirt cheap. So I bought like the whole shelf worth of alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, either do that or. 
I wait for it goes on sale too at Specs. Yeah. So which is our, our local. If you can get here. your hands on actual like PCB IPA, that's it's more expensive and it's harder to get for a home gamer, but it's better. It's more pure. Because uh, I mean, even the stuff you buy at like the drugstore is still diluted somewhat. Yeah, and so back when I was renting a house, uh, I had to build a whole bunch of pinhex myself. This is like when I was first doing them, and so it was a lot of through hole. So I actually did. I used water based flux, and I ran them in my dishwasher. Didn't you also put some uh, simple green in there? Yes, simple green works pretty well at cleaning boards. Yeah, and that worked great. So um, if you have a wife or a girlfriend. Don't do that because they'll probably yell at you, but it's completely fine. <laughs> I've, I've done it too, and what's great about it is uh, they come out like they're done when they when they yeah. come out, and they they're like sparkling clean. Yeah, you put a little bit of that uh, little dish ad- additive into there, mm-hmm. comes out per- sparkling clean. Here, here's here's another uh, thing: scour <laughs> your data sheets for if your parts can be washed. A lot of times it's actually in there. It'll say this part can or can't be washed. And be careful. I even remember at Macrofab multiple times looking at data sheets and they're like footnotes. They're like tiny yeah. text written there. It's like this part cannot be washed. Don't get it near, you know, a mile from water, you know. Yeah. And uh, keep your eyes out for that because, well, okay, so most of the time if it can be washed, they don't say it can be. But if it can't be, it'll be in there. Yes, it will be in there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hopefully that answers some questions. Uh, you know, actually, it, it, it the whole thing about uh, this is painful if it's more than a few boards, get a bunch of alcohol, put it in a tub, and throw all your boards in there, and batch process. That, yep. That's the answer I have for that. Yeah, that's, that's really the only way to do it. Um, I haven't really experimented for... Because usually it's either... I used a dishwasher when I had a batch do it at home. And I used water-based, though, to make sure that that was possible. Um, whereas it depends on if you... It sounds like Magic Wolfie's already got a whole bunch of boards that he needs to clean. So he might be stuck with it was rosin or no clean. If it's no clean, then don't clean them. Don't worry about it. Unless you're doing something that requires, like, your impedance to be really specific. But I, I doubt you are. That's yeah. kind of specific. Mm-hmm. Cool. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Before we go on, do not use an ultrasonic cleaner. Yeah, NASA actually came out with an article about that years yeah, ago. Yeah, whereas um, an ultrasonic cleaner works really good at cleaning bare boards or stencils or anything else, but like it will actually destroy the inner workings inside ICs and stuff. Uh, NASA, their their research found that it can um, it can damage the uh, end caps on capacitors and resistors. That too, yeah. For SMT parts, so uh, it led for them. It led to uh, latent failures. Yeah. So don't do that. It does a damn good job at cleaning, though. <laughs> yeah. Then that's actually um, well, I've been I I I was looking for uh, we're going another big tangent right here. Um, I was looking for better carburetor cleaner to soak parts into because like the stuff you get now is not as good as it was like a decade ago like the stuff a decade ago you would put it in there and then like a couple hours later you pulled out and it, it would have stripped everything off the metal 
now you pull it out a day a day later, not just a couple hours, and you still got to scrub stuff off, dip it back in for a couple hours, and keep scrubbing. So it's just not as good anymore. And so I started going online and figuring out how do auto shops deal with this because they can't buy the quote good stuff anymore, right? Ultrasonic cleaners. Yeah, they take an ultrasonic cleaner, throw some uh, water, water and soap like Dawn. Yeah. Throw the parts in there and then turn that sucker on and it works. So I'm like, okay, that's, I'm going to have to get an ultrasonic cleaner just to clean auto parts. Because apparently it cleans it just as well as the old chemicals did, just without the nastiness of the chemicals. And, and, uh, get, get a, um, get one that has a heater built in. Yes. Those, they say the heaters work really good. Yeah. Yeah. It just rips through grease. Yep. So, and all those, you know, those booger looking things that get in your carburetors. It's game. Oh over. yeah. 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 Ethanol goop. No. So I found a, uh, a fun little clickbait article that I thought we would, uh, we'd just touch on real quick. And uh, whenever I see these kinds of things, I'm like, really? Like, is this just SEO content or is this like, is someone like out here reading this? So EE web had just a, the five best Arduino projects article in the world. In the, yeah, in the whole world. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, <laughs> is Blinky gonna be one of these? You know, uh, but no, it's, it's actually like they've got a whole article where somebody wrote up uh, like a fairly significant amount of content about five different uh, uh, projects that are out here. And and you know. With this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit confused because there's like, it's yeah, they're projects, but they're like projects that other people have done. They're not necessarily projects that are like geared towards you being able to do them. So it just mm-hmm. feels really SEO e, you know. A little bit, yeah. That's what it looks like to me. Like the first one is a robot arm. <laughs> yeah, cool, but. The best uh, Arduino alarm system, and they're using the keypad that you have. Uh, yeah, it's it's almost identical to it. In fact, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it is. The, it's the same keypad, just different um, text on it. Text, yeah. Hmm. Oh, there's home automation. Scary, but it's very high level. Like, you know, but it, it's interesting how it's written because some of the stuff is really high level, and then it dives into part numbers. Right, but it doesn't even give like a link to where you could see the projects. It's just like yeah. ideas. Mm-hmm. Has engineering devolved to SEO? I think so. It always has been. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since man had to sell another device, anything that has been SEO. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think I have anything more to say about yeah, that. I think we're done for this episode. <laughs> okay. Well, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or... Arduino project that should make a top five best list, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel, which we'll totally be discussing our top five best Arduino projects in the world. 
And if you're not subscribed to that podcast yet, click that subscribe button in the podcast app you're using. That way, the latest MEP episode gets right to you right when it comes out. And please review us on iTunes or on Google or wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.